Glory to Jesus Christ. Why do you think James and John had the gall to say to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask? Have you ever said that to Jesus? I want you to do whatever I ask. Has your child said that to you? Did Jesus ever say, ever say, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you? Yeah. James and John, one way of looking at this, were not in the wrong. They were not asking for earthly glory. Jesus says, I'm about to go, to suffer, to die, to rise. And then they said, this is the moment. This is what he promised. We don't want earthly glory. We want glory in heaven. This is it one at your right and one at your left. And Jesus says, can you do it? If you want to sit there in these seats of glory, if you want to wear these crowns of victory, then you have to drink the chalice that I will drink, be baptized in the baptism that I am baptized in. Both of these things are, of course, references to death and resurrection. The chalice, of course, of his blood we only have. This is why we pour the hot water into the chalice, that when we receive the chalice, it's actually warm. Because, of course, dead blood is cold. Living blood is warm. Our nurses know this. And so when we receive the body and blood of Christ, if it's warm, we are reminded that we're receiving the body and blood of the living, resurrected Jesus Christ. This is the chalice Christ speaks of. I haven't heard this in a while, but certainly we were accused, we Catholics and Orthodox, back in the day of being cannibals, since we claim to eat the body and blood of Christ. And of course, the proper answer is cannibals. We're worse. We're eating the body and blood of a living person. They're not even dead. What are you talking about, dead person? Come on. Right. There's something about this, that this is the chalice, the chalice of death and resurrection, the chalice that is our spiritual food. And our baptism, of course, we Byzantines know very well, when you baptize a baby, death, life, death, life, death, life. My assistant in Los Angeles is a married man, married priest, and has five daughters. And he's only ordained two years, so he's actually never done full immersion of a baby. And so we were, our last baptism, we kind of split the responsibility since there were two of us. And the mother of the baby said, I want you to put my baby all the way under, like traditional, all the way under. And he was so intimidated. And I said, well, I guess I get it, but you're also a dad. You know, didn't you ever take your girl swimming? You know, did you ever blow on their face and dunk them under the water and they <gasps> hold their breath when you blow on their face? But the poor guy was so nervous. He says, you are baptized in the name of the Father. And then he, so the poor girl was taking a breath right as she was going under the water. Starts spitting and, you know, spitting up water as it's going under three times. And then he hands her to me. And of course, I love doing the, the walk around the altar for the Song of Simeon. So I'm singing, and the baby's after coughing and screaming. Now she just falls asleep in my arms. <laughs> and Father Nathan looks out, and he goes, he goes, see, I get, this baby is going to remember this her whole life. I'm the one that dunked her, almost killed her. Then Father Michael sang her a lullaby and carried her around the altar. <laughs> it's just not fair. But the baptism is reason. It's supposed to symbolize death, the death that Christ underwent and the resurrection that he underwent. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, death and new life. This is what Christ asks of them. And how do they respond? 
we can. We can either see that as an arrogant statement, oh, we got this by my own power, or we can see it as a statement of martyrdom. They want those crowns. They want those crowns of martyrdom. They want to sit in the glory in heaven. They really want those, and they got it. James died a martyr, one of the first, and got that crown. John lived a martyr <laughs> his whole life, taking care of the mother of God and giving everything for his whole life. They drank from that chalice. They were baptized in that death and resurrection that Christ was baptized in. They're kind of the heroes of the story, if we see it that way. And so there's still, though, a certain innocence, a certain, a certain unknowing in their asking for this. Of course, what do we say? Who is sitting at Jesus' right and at his left in the kingdom? Do we have any tradition of that? That's not one person look at the iconostas. That's where you need to look. Right? This is earth, and this is heaven. Then this is the kingdom, and Jesus is sitting here enthroned. Who's at his right? His mother. Traditionally, you would have the, the patron of the church, but also John the Baptist over here. So you have John the Baptist. His mother sitting on his right, John the Baptist on his left. It is not mine to give. It's to who they prepared, right? His own mother, then the one who's the greatest born of woman. But why is that not even appropriate? I had a friend say very simply, in the beginning there was only God. And in the end, there will only be God. That's all there will be. And God, of course, from all time existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So where will we be if in the end all there is is Jesus and the Father and the Son? We, of course, will be in the body of Christ. We won't be sitting his right and his left. We'll be sitting in his throne as members of his body. It's even better than they thought. But if you look at some of the readings, I've been talking about it earlier today and last night, so many of the readings that we hear during this great fast kind of reorient us as far as what Jesus' mission is. Remember the man is lowered through the ceiling? That's the first time we hear it, lowered through the ceiling. And he's obviously not there to receive anything else except freedom from his paralysis. And Jesus looks at him and goes, oh, look at all that faith. Your sins are forgiven. What do you think the man said? Oh, I don't know if they told you I'm actually not here to have my sins forgiven. I'm here to be able to stand up and walk, <laughs> right? But Jesus didn't care. The man could have lived a very good life being paralyzed the rest of his life. Jesus gave him the better gift. Would you rather sit at Jesus' right and left or sit on his throne with him, right? Would we rather be able to stand up and walk or be freed from our sins? Be honest. We're on a journey. We don't need to answer be free to my sins right now. We're learning that. We've got a long way to go in our lives. But the same thing is true today. We have the same thing, by the way, last Sunday with the man coming down the mountain. As I mentioned earlier, right, Jesus wants to give the Father and his apostles faith. He doesn't care as much about the demon. The demon can't do much. He can't take away the man's faith. He can't take away the boy's faith. So Jesus wants them to have faith. That's what he cares about, not the demon. The demon's kind of nothing to him. Again, we need to be afraid of demons. We really do. But what we need to be afraid of them for is that they convince us to give away our souls, seek after something else. We don't need to be afraid of all the turning on and off the TV and all that stuff. Right? Demons can do that, and it's not that scary. It shouldn't be that scary, even though it is. I'm pretending like I'm not scared of those things. Of course I'm scared of those things. <laughs> I'm not going to give up my soul. The same thing happens again today. Jesus says, what am I pointing at? What is the important thing here? The important thing is not sitting my right and my left. The important thing is the chalice and it's the baptism. 
And so this is, in a sense, our goal, to make sure that at this point in the great fast, with only two weeks to go until Pascha, at this point in the great fast, I hope you have realized, as I hope I have too, that I cannot save myself. I cannot progress. I'm actually kind of a mess. I've been trying, and I finally just kind of collapse in exhaustion. Jesus grabs me by the foot and starts dragging me along. You hear that, that poem, Butt Prints in the Sand? <laughs> Not footprints in the sand. Right? Here's where I dropped you on your butt and dragged you the rest of the way. I love that poem. That's exactly how we are. Jesus carried us. We put up a fight. He dropped us, dragged us the rest of the way. So appropriate. But there's something that Jesus is doing in our hearts, and it's probably not what we ask for. So what do we do? Is we just calm down, and we rest, and we continue asking. We're probably going to ask for the wrong thing, and that's okay. <laughs> We're probably going to ask for the sitting at his right and his left. He's going to go, okay, that's fine. I hear you. But I actually have something much better for you that I can't explain now, but you'll see it. I hope that James, as he was being martyred, understood that well. I hope that John, as he was taking care of the mother of God into her old age, you know, past her death, as he was in the cave writing the book of Revelation and understanding his life and all that that was, I hope he understood that what he asked for was not nearly big enough. I hope he realized that what he asked for was a certain limited gift when God wanted to have an unlimited gift for him. Same thing is true for Mary of Egypt, of course, that we celebrate this Sunday. Mary of Egypt, as hopefully all of you know, was, a, was an addict, multiple things. But we get obsessed with sex, so we always call her a sex addict. But she was probably addicted to alcohol and many other things. So she was a sex addict. She especially loved leading men astray. It was a, a malicious act. She says in her writings, in her, in her speaking to Zosimus that he wrote down, she says, don't call me a prostitute. I was not doing this because I wanted something like money out of it. I wanted to defile men. I wanted to lead them astray. And she was insistent upon that. So when she gets to the door, she's following all these men to the Holy Sepulcher, and she wants to go venerate the cross because all these men are going there to venerate the cross, and she can't get in. There's an invisible field, a power that keeps her from walking in the doors. She tries multiple times. She just thinks it's because she's weak. It's like she's like kind of fighting off the crowd. And all of a sudden, she goes from the fighting and the fighting and the fighting and the fighting, and she just sits down in exhaustion. That's the moment of conversion. <laughs> sits down in exhaustion. She looks up at an icon of the Mother of God, and the Mother of God says, you can't get in because of your sin. But repent. Go in. Venerate the cross of my son. Live the rest of your life in repentance. That's exactly what she does. She leaves. She goes off. She's not discovered for decades out in the desert on the other side of the Jordan, wandering around, all of her clothes literally fall off of her. So she's like back in Eden, walking around naked in the desert, living a life of repentance. She says that, that songs, impure songs, would pop into her mind, and she couldn't get them out. They'd be stuck in her head. And she would fall down in the hot sand to try to get these songs out of her head. She yearned for all the escapes that she had in the world and all these things, and she had to be purified over the course of decades. And all of a sudden, she meets this man, Zosimus. Zosimus is a very arrogant monk. And God sends him to find someone holier than him. He thinks he's the holiest in the world. And so he's walking through the desert during the great fast. And he comes upon this person walking around naked. Her, her skin was so sunburnt that he thought it was a man from a distance. And he goes to find this holy man. And she realizes he's coming, so she says, throw me your cloak. I'm naked. I'm a woman. So he throws her 
his cloak, and they both fall down in front of each other, begging for a blessing. He says to her, holy woman, give me your blessing. I have never met anybody holier. I thought I was the holiest in the world, and God sent me to you to realize there is absolutely someone holier than me. Give me your blessing. And she said, no, 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 Father, you give me your blessing. You're a priest. You give me your priestly blessing, and they fight. No, give me your blessing. No, give me your blessing. And of course, she wins out because she is holier. And so he gives her his blessing. She sends it back. He brings her the Eucharist, which she hasn't received in decades. That's the icon that we have, her receiving the Eucharist. The next year, he comes back, and she's dead. And a lion buries her because the ground is so hard in the desert that a lion comes along and, and, and digs the hole. She was one with the desert, one with the wild beasts, had found this order that she so longed for. But it wasn't by her own strength that she was able to do this. It was actually her, her rest, her rest. And so I hope this is a part of the great fast where we can truly actually rest. Rest from all of our efforts, our desires to control, our desires to fix ourselves. And there's something about that rest that is the rest of James and John. It's the rest of saying, now we rest in God's will, and yet there is a certain urgency that God calls us to. We don't really rest during the great fast, do we? We rest on Pascha. During the great fast, there's a great urgency, but that urgency has to be defined by Christ. And I think there's a time of rest that begins that time of urgency, and then we just follow, and we just listen to Christ and go along. So if you have been fighting, if you've been trying to be in control, if you've been trying to fix yourself like all of us have, trying to get better at the fasting and this almsgiving and, and the, the prayer, all these things, and you've, you've done well in some ways like I have and probably really struggled some ways like I have. I think this is a time Mary Ujid have rested and then went off and spent years in the desert fighting. James and John rested and then spent time being martyred, undergoing the baptism. But to order to do that right, we need to rest. So I would encourage you, sounds kind of odd in the great fast, but rest from your own labors. Rest from the burden and the yoke that you've put on your own shoulders at this time. And I promise you, if you rest from these things, stop being so critical of the ways that you failed. Understand that you've completely failed. Do you think 40 years wandering around the desert actually fixed Mary of Egypt? Not a chance. Even that wasn't enough. The Eucharist was what she needed. God. And she finally had that after exhausting herself in the desert for all those years. Her clothes only rotting off of her body. There's something beautiful about the rest. We awaken, refreshed, and then we can go our way with this urgency that Christ calls us to as he defines it. Amen. Glory to Jesus Christ.